Welcome to the Jeff Knows Inc. Entrepreneurial Podcast with your host, Jeff Lopes. Jeff has over two decades experience as a serial entrepreneur, building brands like KimuraWare from his home basement to a multi-million dollar global brand that has sold over a quarter million pairs of boxing gloves. Jeff's here to educate, guide, and drive you on the process of bringing your ideas and dreams to reality with the inspiring stories from some of the top business minds. Welcome to episode 134 of the Jeff Nozine Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lopes. Super excited. Today is a little special one. I'm a baseball guy, so super excited to have the actual Disney movie, The Rookie. The story is based on the true life story of Jim Morrison, and today we're honored to have Jim Morrison on today. What a great conversation. Incredible individual has been through a ton and has accomplished a ton. Sit back, everyone. Enjoy. This is a great conversation. We are live. We are live on the Jeff Nosing podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lopes. Super excited. Like, I'm thrilled. As a baseball guy, as somebody that sat down with his family to watch the movie, to interview yourself, Jim Morrison. How are you, brother? I am fantastic. Thank you. This is this is this is going to be a fun conversation. Like, I, I love the podcasting world because you just you get the meat and hear these interesting stories. You're a little different because I'm the curious type. I don't like knowing much about who I'm interviewing, but your story is. It's a Disney movie. You, you can't really hide what you did. So I'm going to start off a little different. I want to start off with Jim growing up. Where'd you grow up? How many siblings you had? Like, tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what got you into the love of baseball and got you into that route. Wow. My dad was in the military and we moved constantly. And his, I did not have the relationship that you did with your dad. My dad was physically and verbally abusive. So number one, I'm born with asthma in San Diego, California. Within 24 hours, I have pneumonia. I'm not supposed to get out of the hospital. I do. He'll never play on grass. He'll never play outside. It's, it's too chancy. He'll die. Well, I did. Everywhere we moved, and my father, great big military guy who was not nice. And children are to be seen and not heard. So I didn't talk. The way I could talk and express myself was through sports. And living in Southern California, you know, back then we moved to Oakland. And so Oakland A's, back when they were really good, Vita Blue, everybody wanted to pitch like Vita Blue. And I'll tell you what, nobody could because he was Vita Blue. And, but baseball became my identity and my survival. And in between those white lines, I could be the kid that I was supposed to be for only a few hours at a time. And so my love for the game has never been, I'm playing against Jeff. I'm playing to make myself better. And so I'm playing against myself to see if I can improve one thing every single time I go out. And if I can do that, then I'm getting better. I don't care who's on the opposing team. I just want to make myself better so I can be a better teammate so I can help us try to win. And I played baseball in the dark. I would throw the ball up and down at night in the bed and catch it. Sometimes I got hit in the mouth because I didn't see it. But baseball for me was life because baseball coincides, I think, with chess. And you're always trying to make a move two or three times before you think the other person is going to make a certain move. So it's like life. And so I, I look at life like a big baseball game. And what can I do now? Like you made a big sacrifice 10 weeks ago 
and you're trying to figure out what your next moves are going to be on the fly. And so I, the friends that I have who go, baseball is boring. It's so slow. Not if you're in the game and you're not, and you're paying attention, it goes a lot quicker. If you're on the mound, uh, you can give up one hit and all of a sudden you walk a couple of guys and some guy hits a, hits a grand slam and all of a sudden you're four runs down and it's a blink of an eye. And so I've, I've loved baseball since I was five years old. My grandmother gave me my first ball and glove and she would play catch with me until she got tired. And then my mom would take over and then she would get tired and I'd throw the ball off the roof so I could catch flies and I'm throwing it up. I don't know where it's going to come down. So I'm diving all over the place for me, getting dirty and having fun with the game of baseball was life. When did you, from what age did you actually start getting off the attention and stuff like that saying, Hey, you know what? Uh, my arm's strong. Like I, I could really do well here. And obviously that changed with your path, your career. We'll get into that. But when was it like, there was a way through high school. Like when did you really, really tone into your pitching and really realizing that you had a gift? In Florida, when my dad was stationed in Florida, we lived in Hollywood, Florida. I pitched for MacArthur high school. I was a second freshman ever to make the varsity baseball team. And the coaches were like, you can do this. And I wanted to play tennis too. Right. Tennis. They had me go to the doctor. And they're like, it's tennis or baseball. And that's no choice for me. It's baseball. And two weeks after I make the varsity baseball team, my dad said, guess what? We're moving to Brownwood, Texas. And they weren't moving. And so for 15 years, I watched my parents argue and curse, throw, hit, do things you promise never to do when you walk down the aisle of a church before God. But at 15, they did me the biggest favor they never knew they did for me. And it derailed my baseball dream for a while. They sent me to my father's parents' house from Miami, Florida. I moved to Brownwood, Texas. And when I got to Brownwood, I thought, okay, these are my father's parents. And so they're going to be like him. And, you know, from the age of five, I'm having, I want to play my sports, but I've also got to do my homework. I got to take care of my little brother. I got to cook dinner. I got to do the clothes. I got to clean the house. I got all these chores to do. I got to take care of the dog. I move into my grandparents' house, think it's going to be the same way. And I have two rules. If you do it, own it. Own it, live up to it, and move on. Number two, always tell the truth because the truth is a truth that doesn't change. And you don't have to remember what you said because it's the truth. And I love that. I think I think the world right now, we need truth. And a we thousand percent. Uh, and those were my two rules. At 15, I could have fallen off the rails so easily. And my grandparents were like, nope. My grandmother was our church secretary. My grandfather had a men's wear store in this little bitty town in Texas. But I'll tell you, Jeff, they knew everyone. And before six months was up, I was like, why couldn't these have been my parents? And they taught me how to be a good man, a good human being. And they taught me about life in ways that I are innumerable, probably like your father and your mother did for you. And my grandparents saved me. And, but they moved me into a town where the football coach hated baseball. So we had no baseball team in high school. So we're playing football or you're getting in shape for football or you're playing football. And so I played 10 games a summer during summer league. I have no idea how I get noticed, but somebody from major league baseball scouting bureau came in 
I get drafted after I graduate from high school without ever pitching a high school game. And the Yankees drafted me. And at that time, center field, I could run really well. I could hit, but I'm left-handed and I can throw. And so they're like, you're going to be a pitcher now. And what, so, what, what, what year was this in? Uh, 1982. So I would have been five. I would have been five years old. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't go there, dude. I try to avoid mirrors, and then you hit me with that. Thank you very much. And, I was thinking but, it was a different time of the game, too, right? The game, yeah. right before, um, I, I, I just interviewed um, recently uh, Brett Boone. He has his own oh, okay. podcast and all that stuff like that. And it, it's crazy. Like his generation, grandfather played, father played, him and his brother played. Now his son plays. His right. son's, uh, I think his son's in the, uh, I think it's California's uh, farm system. He's just in single A or double A. But it's, 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 he's a generational player. But it was one of those things where how we, we, we actually had this conversation, how the game has evolved and evolved from fitness. Yeah. And from 82, I mean, 80s, I grew up, that was a kid. Like, I was really watching baseball that time. Like, I was always a baseball guy. So, it's, it's crazy when you see how the, the evolution of the game. So, um, sorry, continue your story. I just wanted to say that. Well, my grandfather was sick, and so I wanted to stay close to home. Yeah. And I went to Rangers Junior College for a semester. My coach, I love my Jack Allen was our junior college coach. We had a great team. Ellis Burks was our center fielder. I mean, we were loaded, right? Yeah. And so this team comes into town and there are like 19 scouts in the stands that day, but I didn't know that. And so Jack goes, I don't want you to throw the ball over 80 miles an hour today. And so I throw like three pitches on the fourth pitch. This guy hits one that hasn't landed and it's 2021 now. <laughs> and so I'm like that. No, a guy gives me the ball. The next pitch I throw boof, 90. And he calls timeout. All these scouts start throwing their guns up. He goes, well, you screwed me. And he turns around and walks off. <laughs> During that semester, my grandfather passed away in November of 1982. Two months later, I turned 19. I get drafted in a supplemental draft in Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, fourth round. I mean, first round, fourth pick. And they took two pitchers. One was a guy who had failed out of Alabama. His name was, he was a lefty, Kevin Brown. He got drafted number three by the Mets. I get drafted fourth by the Yankees. Two pitchers gone in an instant. And is that is that, that same is that the same Kevin Brown that ended up having a decent career? No. Okay. No. Okay. 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 This was a different guy. Yeah. But he was he had a great curveball and he could throw hard, but he couldn't make the grades at Alabama. So he came to Ranger Junior College. So we had what would have been a loaded team. Yeah. And he signed. I signed, we're gone, two lefties out of the rotation immediately. And that is where my journey started, man. I come from Brownwood where I strike out everybody at home. And I'm like, I will be in the big leagues in six months. You watch. You turn a TV on, I'll be on TV. And that did not happen. And I get to spring training. There's 100 guys there. I think it's the whole organization. That's just the pitchers. And it's 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 so crazy, huh? And I'm like, wow. And everybody's good. They've been to college or they've been in professional ball for a couple of years. I'm coming from little bitty Brownwood where I play summer ball and I am not prepared. Yeah. And over the next six years, I never got out of class A ball. 
I throw 87, 88 miles an hour. And I've got decent movement. I got a knuckle curve that drops pretty good. But I'm behind the eight ball. I'm seeing people like Dan Plesak and Jeff Parrott and Mark Chiardi and Chris Bozio's on my team. And they're all going to the big leagues. And I'm like, what? Tommy John surgery. Okay, I'll work on my elbow. Okay, now your shoulder's bad. And now you're going to have shoulder surgery. And so by 24, I'm out of the game already. And just to call a timeout real quick, in 82, it was all about running. Pitchers don't lift. You'll get tight and you can't throw hard. And so we're going to run. And we're in Phoenix. It's 120 anyway. We have rubber tops on. And we're running 30 minutes a day. And then I come back in 99, and it's not about running. It's about a few sprints. We lift and lift and lift, and then we long toss, and we get stronger. Hmm. And the game had changed. And then, you know, today, they're doing hand-eye coordination on computers, and they're doing things. And it's just, yeah, the evolution of baseball, all about analytics now. It's it's totally analytics. And and, and the age they start out, like my son's, at 12, their team had a, I mean, you want to call it a, a psych, a mind coach already. They had um, uh, Jason Delves, which is a good friend of mine, which is uh, used to be one of the head trainers for the Toronto Blue Jays, training these 12-year-olds. So they're doing strength and conditioning. They're, doing, they're, they're working on their mind. They're, work, they, they're training four or five days a week at 12. Yeah. It's crazy, the evolution of the game. That's what we're talking about. It's just, it's just yeah. tame, totally changed. See, when I grew up, they're like, we want guys who play all kinds of sports so that they can adapt to baseball. Yeah. Now you get into baseball at 11 and you better have coaches and you better be on a travel team yeah. and you better be able to do hand-eye coordination stuff because it has become profitable. Yeah. yeah. And so you got to be baseball, 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 or football, 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 or basketball, basketball, basketball. And that's it. And if this is what you want to do, you're playing because if you want to get on the high school team, you better have the training for it. And it's just a different animal now. And 24 back then, I'm out of, I'm out of baseball. I'm in Dr. Andrew's office in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the top orthopedic surgeons. And he goes, what do you want to do? And I said, it's time for me to grow up. He goes, well, I can fix it and put you back on the field, but the decision is yours. What do you want to do? I said, I want to go home. And I did this. My approach was wrong. If I can go home and find a group of kids and teach them the opposite of what I did, they'll be pretty good. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to college. Eventually, I'll meet somebody, get married, start a family, buy a house, get a dog, grow up. That's my plan. He said, Jimmy, that is a great plan. Start with a dog. (laughs) Wow. So I bought a dog and I went to college. Now, as I grew up, every time we moved, I went to 30 different schools by the time I was 15. Yeah. And so one place would be on something, and then I would get to some place, and there's on something else. And so academically, I'm lost. I did just good enough to play sports. And I take the SAT test the night after he won the state championship in football. After the scores come back, my counselor stops me in the hallway. He said, what are you going to do with your life? And he's got my scores in his hand, right? Yeah. And he's looking at scores. He's looking at me. And I'm like, I'm going to be a baseball player. Everybody knows that. 
And he said, I hope so. You're too stupid to go to college. And I'm like, you're my guidance counselor, dude. Aren't you supposed to help me? Help me motivate you. And, uh, but at 24, my focus was different. I go back to college and for the first time in my life, the first professor I have in anatomy and physiology tells me, you need to go to medical school. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, this is a summer class. Nobody takes anatomy and physiology during the summer. He goes, the only 19 other people in here are nurses, registered nurses, and you. And they all want to be your lab partner. What does that tell you? I look good. And he goes, no, you don't. He goes, but you're smart. He goes, the answers to your test are better than the questions that I wrote. You can do anything you want. And so then school became fun. Straight A's, honors fraternity, honors graduate. It was a blast. You could do anything you want. But I wanted to work with kids. Get out of school. Start working with kids, man. All my kids excel in science. Now I'm teaching science. And all my kids excel in biology and anatomy and physics and everything else I teach. All my baseball teams win until I go to Big Lake, Texas, Reagan County High School. And they had won one game each year for three years before I got there. And I'm like, my work is cut out for me. I had eight kids show up for baseball. Now, Eight is not enough. Enough to play. And uh, so I offered a free A in physics, you know, the most exciting class in high school curriculum. If you play for me, I'll give you an A. I had two (laughs) takers, two takers. They made straight A's and they could not play baseball. (laughs) And uh, we started that season with 10 kids. And for me, baseball has always been about learning the history. And I was telling my wife this the other night, and I said, you know what? My parents bought me a book in 1975 and gave it to me for Christmas. It was by scientists. They wrote this. Curveballs are an illusion. They don't actually break. This was in 1975. And scientists are saying that curveballs do not break. And I'm like, what? Because now I'm teaching all these science. I'm like, that is not even close because I've seen guys throw stuff and I'm like, how are they doing that? I wanted to teach in the history of baseball and how it's seen us through so much of our history. Yeah. Baseball has meant a lot to the United States. Oh, of course. Now it's Canada, it's Australia, it's Japan, yeah. it's South Korea, it's everywhere. But it started here. And so I want to teach them about the history of baseball, but I could not. You know, my, one of the lessons my grandfather always taught me was you can't respect anybody else until you respect yourself first. And we had to learn how to wear our uniforms properly. We had to learn to turn our hats around with the build of the front. You make nine or two million bucks a year. You don't have to wear a hat or you can wear it backward. You can wear it sideways. I don't care. But on this field, in between these lines, we're going to look good and we may look good being bad, but we're going to look good. And we get that down. We learn how not to talk to the other team. We learn how not to talk to the umpires. The only thing we're going to say 
are uplifting positive things to each other because nobody's trying to give up a home run ball and nobody's trying to make an error. We're all trying to accomplish the same thing as a team we're trying to win. And so keep your mouth closed unless you have something good to say. They got that. And then we went and took it in the classroom. We opened doors for teachers. We said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. We did our homework. We turned it in. And we otherwise closed our mouths because unless we're learning, we can't dream as big as we can possibly dream. We got that down. We went back out to the field. We redid the whole field, infield, outfield. I brought dirt in from Oklahoma to West Texas so we'd have red dirt on our baseball field. Planted grass, made a fence, put our big Reagan County Owls thing on the center field fence. I mean, the field was awesome. And they respected it because they had done the work themselves. I love and that. When you do the work yourself, you respect it a whole lot more than if somebody just hands you something. And the kids won 10 games that year. We were 10-0 at home. And the following season at this little bitty school in West Texas, I had 63 kids come out for my baseball team. Wow. And uh, now the problem is that was 1999. And that's where the story takes place in the Disney movie, right? Yeah. On my way to practice in 1999, athletic director and head football coach pulls me aside to say, you've taken these kids as far as you can. Their parents are losers. These kids are losers. They're never going anywhere. They're probably not even going to graduate from high school. And then he put his finger in my chest, which everybody loves, right? He said, you are a great baseball coach, but you're always going to come in last to people like me because I know how to step on people. You're too nice. And I thought, and they put you in charge of everybody. That is so awesome. Two of my kids are around the corner where I couldn't see him. This guy who is not the guy who hired me ruined two years of work in 90 seconds. Before I could get to the field, everybody knew what he had said. The guy not only in charge of all the coaches, but all the kids in the athletic program were losers. People come through here on their way to somewhere else, coach. And that sent me at the age of 35, that sent me right back when I was 19 and I my dad had retired from the military moved back to Brownwood and he says do not take that money and go buy a little red sports car so you buy it I bought the little red sports car I drove from Brownwood to Phoenix on my way I drove through Big Lake Texas and I thought who would live here see and, and God has a sense of humor my grandfather taught me that <laughs> 15 years later, that's where I live. And, but I knew what the kids were talking about. And so when the movie opens up after the nuns, the first two games are 15 to one and 15 to zero. We get run off the field, run ruled, we're done. I send the kids down a left field line. I stood on home plate and I just said a prayer. And I said, God, what can I do to help these kids? How can I push them without breaking them? How can I get them to dream? How can I get them to see their true worth? And the answer was so simple and hit me immediately. Go down there and teach them what your grandparents taught you. So I walked down there and I start teaching them everything that my grandparents taught me. You're born with your name and you die with your name. What you do with it in between is a legacy you leave behind for everybody else. Who do you want to be? If you ever make a promise, you live up to that promise no matter what, because at the end of the day, when you pass away, you're going to be remembered for one thing. Did you live by your word? 
Were you honest? Takes a lifetime to build good character. Takes one mistake to destroy everything you've ever worked for. Who are you? It all comes back to that. Who are you and what do you stand for? And the other thing is, Every day for three years, my grandfather, as I walked out of his house to go to school, he would look out of his room and he's buttoned in his vest for his three-piece suit to go to work. And he would go, remember who you are. Remember who you are and whose you are. And I taught those kids that. And it's a public school and you're not supposed to talk about God. And we did. And you know what? Nobody ever said a word to me because I didn't push it down anybody's throat. It was just lessons that my grandparents taught me. And because of my grandparents, I've got great faith. I watched my grandfather go through ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and go from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair in six months. And this huge man who had fought in World War II and carried a whole city and part of the state on his shoulders was now doing it from a wheelchair. Never complained, never got upset. This is how it is, and this is where I'm going. And the class and the character that he showed, it's easy to look at somebody when everything's going good and go, man, they got it all. But you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And I watched my grandmother, who's this little bitty lady trying to lift this six foot three man into a wheelchair every day to get him to the bathroom so he could get ready for work. And they never complained. It is what it is. It's just one more obstacle. And so I'm teaching these kids all these lessons. And I said, you have to go out and live life. You can't let life live you. Don't let anybody dictate to you what you're going to do with yours. This is your life. You decide what you're going to do with it. It's up to you. And I get into this. And in the back of my mind, 20 minutes in, I'm like, my grandfather would be proud. And the kids are looking at me. They're engaged. They're smiling. And that's when my 18-year-old catcher looked at me and goes, well, what about your dreams? He said, my dream is to watch you guys be successful in the classroom, on the field, graduate, and then go chase whatever dream it is you want. He said, we know that, and we love you too, but we think you still want to play baseball. I said, no, sir. I weigh 260 pounds. I am 35 years old. I've had nine surgeries on my arm, the last one. The doctor cut 85% of the deltoid out of my arm and said, you will never, ever, ever pitch again. But coach, the way you teach us the game, we know what the other team is going to do before they do it. When you throw us batting practice, we can't hit it. And I said, that's because you can't hit. <laughs> and then he looks at me and goes, why are you telling us to chase our dreams if you're not willing to do it yourself? And I said, you're 18. You need to shut up. <laughs> he starts giggling. Everybody else starts giggling. And they go, what if we start winning? You try it again. I said, I can't do that. Have you not heard? I look like a scout, not a player. If we win a district championship in baseball, which these kids have never been a part of their entire life, if we win, you try out. So another 20 minutes goes by, and then I did what every parent does. Caved in. If you win, I will go to a tryout. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you are old and fat, and this is going to be embarrassing beyond belief. But if it gets these kids to perform and live up to expectation, not down to expectation, 
were there. That is that is amazing. Quick question, I'm gonna, and you're going to get back into it, but we'll talk about your when you got into the majors. Um, Dennis Quaid, when he played you, did you meet him prior? Did he did he spend time with you to kind of get to know you as an individual as well? The day he signed the contract to play me, and there was a multitude of people who wanted that part. And I'm so happy it was him because we got along so well. I went to his house in Brentwood. And this man who has already made 53 movies at the time, I'm playing catch with in his front yard in Brentwood, California. And I'm like, I'm playing catch with Dennis Quaid. (laughs) So we get done. He goes back in the house. I get ready to leave. I call my mom on my cell phone. I said, Mom, guess what I just did? And I tell her the whole thing. And she goes, you suck. (laughs) (laughs) And she starts giggling. She goes, he is so good looking. I'm like, but I'm your son. (laughs) Yeah. But his smile. (laughs) Yes. And we would go to Dodger stadium and, and he would replicate everything I'm doing to the point where he's twirling the ball in his hand one day. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, what you do. So crazy. I I don't do that. And he gives me the ball and he goes, okay, get up here and get ready to throw. And I'm sitting there with it behind my back and I'm twirling it so that nobody can pick up the pitches I'm throwing. I don't even know I'm doing it. And he goes, see, I'm like, oh, and then all of a sudden, like 200 people start cheering. We're in Dodger stadium and all these people start cheering. And I look up and it's a tour bus of people. I'm like, wow. And I forget who's next to me, right? (laughs) I'm like, oh, that's for you. And and he giggles, yeah, we were friends. And I went to listen to him and his band play a lot while we were filming the movie. And we went out to eat and I watched him play golf. And what a great guy. And he said, if you see anything being filmed that you don't like, you tell me and it's out. And he was true to his word. Now, three days in the process, we're on the set and they say cut and he comes over to me and I'm watching all this stuff take place in front of me. And I'm on a movie set where people are there because of me. And it's like 200 people. And he comes up, he goes, we're fixing to do the part about the bet. Tell me what you would say right now. And so I start rattling off all this stuff I say. And I'm like, he's not writing anything down. I'm like, he's doesn't remember nothing, man. They go back and they go, action. Almost word for word, he starts spitting out everything. I'm like, oh, yeah, you do this for a living. And and he would giggle at stuff. And then we would do interviews. And he would look at me like, how did you come up with that like that? And I'm like, I'm a guy. I've been in a locker room, man. If somebody talks trash, you talk it right back. That's how it goes. Because we're in New York doing interviews. And we're like, yeah. hey, do people wave like you do in Texas? I said, yeah, but with less fingers. And <laughs> He's like, he almost falls out of his chair while we're doing an interview, man. He just loses it. He goes, that is so quick. But yeah, great guy. So you signed with Tampa, or you went for the trials, you signed with Tampa, like in the movie. You're, when you hit the minors, did you have that hope of getting up there again? Or was that in your head, like, this is not going to happen? No, I already had a job in Fort Worth at a great big high school, and I was going to be assistant football coach and head baseball coach. And my deal was I'm getting to be a kid again 
for a summer at 35. This is so cool. And so they sent me to rehab camp after I signed. They take away my Dr. Peppers and my tortillas. And after I throw, I'm like, I'm done. It's Florida. It's hot. It's humid. I'm going to shower. They're like, oh, no. Now we run. And now we do PFPs. And they're drilling balls back at me. That's my job is to hit balls at people. And now they're hitting them at me. And I'm like, oh, I forgot about all this stuff. I thought I was just here to throw. <laughs> and so three weeks of the worst diet that ended up being the best thing that happened to me that I never want to be on again. <laughs> and then they sent me to double A. I'm already higher than I was the first time around. You go straight to double A. I walk in to the clubhouse and the Orlando Rays are playing Zebulon mud cats or something or catfish. Or I walk into the clubhouse, this kid looks up and he goes, Hey, we got a new coach. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't like you. Yeah, you suck. <laughs> and I throw the first night. I come in with a guy on first, and you're going to love this. What do you think the first thing I did was before I ever threw a pitch? I don't and know. I'm a coach, and I'm a former player, and this should never happen. The guy on first jukes, and I balk before I ever throw a pitch. <laughs> and Ray Searage is a pitching coach, right? Yeah. And so I'm sitting there on the mound, and I'm giggling, and he comes out, and he goes, what? Are you laughing at? I said, I am a coach. <laughs> I am not supposed to do that. My kids would be all over me. And he starts laughing. Then the ump comes out and I tell him, and he starts laughing. We get back, strike the guy out, innings over, 91, 92. They're like, he's not crazy. He's pretty good. The second night in double A, two innings, strike out five guys, 98, 99 miles an hour. And they're like, wow. Next day I'm in triple A. And for the next two months, I'm watching guys on their way up, on their way down, and guys just trying to hold on. And I'm having a blast being a kid again. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. So when you got that call, who was the first person you called? Call my son. How many, how many children do you I, have? How many children do you have? Okay, I have three from a former marriage. My wife had two, so we raised five kids. Five kids. So it's a full house. Almost the Brady Bunch has a full, full house. It is. We, you know, I'm not making fun of anybody, but we look like a group of Mormons when we go anywhere. <laughs> and I would see these people walking in with like five kids. And I go, God, you got a lot of kids. I'm like, my wife would go, uh, we have that many. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and none of them like baseball. <laughs> and so after President Bush watched the movie, he invited my son and I to the White House. Oh, Cal awesome. Ripken's doing his T-ball deal, and he wanted to meet me. And I was supposed to go while he watched the movie, but I had already signed a contract to go to Hawaii and do a speech. Yeah. And so he invited us later. And so we're sitting there at this T-ball event that Cal Ripken's doing, right? Yeah. And so all these famous people are there. The president of the United States is there. And my son, the president, looks at my son and goes, Hunter, are you going to be a ball player like your daddy? This is a guy who loves baseball, owned a major league yeah, baseball yeah, team. The Rangers, yeah. My 10-year-old son looks at me and goes, no, sir, baseball sucks. <laughs> you did not just say that to the president of the United States. Because I'm going to be a lawyer at 10. He's a lawyer. 
He's 31. I love it. I love it. I love it. Baseball was my dream and baseball helped keep me out of the house. It did not have to be any of my kids dream. No. And I never pushed it on them. Whatever they did, I was there to cheer them on. And, Mm. but baseball for me saved my life. That and my grandparents. Love it. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Dream Makers. Why don't you take pen to paper? Is that your first book or you wrote prior? No, we did the rookie alongside the movie. um, It was the oldest rookie in hardback. And then Disney wanted to buy the rights to the paperback. So they did because, you know, they're Disney and they can. And so they put their art on the front and the paperback became the rookie. And but this book, Dream Makers, was like 20 years in the making. Jeff, I have to tell you. I could never come up with an ending. And we had all this stuff and we thought, this is how we're going to do it. But there was no. God gave me two endings. So chapters nine and 10 are his endings. And I didn't have the parents you had and I didn't have the tutelage that you had. The reason that I walked away from baseball in 2001, I signed with the Dodgers. I'm in Chavez Ravine working out every day. I'm either there, I'm at Dr. Job's clinic lifting weights and they're monitoring me. And so I would do that. I would go back and I would pitch and hit and run. Everything's fine. I'm throwing 98. I'm putting it where I want to. Here we go. They're building me up to be the closer. I leave there to go to spring training while they were still in Florida. I go through Texas five days. I get to Florida and guys start throwing the ball at me and I can't judge the ball in five days. I'm like, what is going on? I teach baseball. I teach people how to bunt, how to catch the ball with the bat. I can't bunt at all. This one guy, Manny something, he's sitting there throwing. He goes, you just have to bunt it. I can't even contact. I'm like, I'm freaking out. And I don't want to tell anybody because I'm like, but in my mind, I'm going, if you throw the ball up there at 98 and somebody hits it back at you 110, what are you going to do when they take the screen away? And it scared me to death. And I blamed what was going on on the arm injury. And I said, you know what? I can't throw. I can't throw. And so I quit. And over the next 20 years, I have 70 surgeries, mostly on nerves. And eventually, one of the, my doctors, my neurologist says, we're going to do a brain scan. You're going to drink this radioactive fluid, and we're going to do a brain scan. I said, okay. And the test results come back, and you don't have any dopamine on the right side of your brain, and you have Parkinson's. And so I go to the number one guy in the U.S., Parkinson's in Houston, who has the worst bedside manner on the planet. I fired him immediately. and he goes. You've had over 30 concussions between football and baseball and everything else you've done, the car wrecks. He goes, you have CT-induced Parkinson's. What? And he gives me medicine. This is going to help. Carbidopa, levodopa. Here you go. And it helped for like three years. I haven't been able to smell or taste food. My wife is now having to travel with me because I can't button the buttons on my shirt. We go to airports and we have to take escalators everywhere because if I go up the stairs, my legs shake so bad, I almost fall down and every freaking out, you know, airports, how they are. People just stop and they're like, oh, my phone dinged. I couldn't stop. I'd run right into them. 
if they were in front of me and it just got worse. And, but the levodopa carbidopa combination ruined my stomach. And then, so I have gastric bypass because my stomach doesn't work. That's another 30 surgeries. And my elderly mother, who I just had lunch with is why I was late getting to you, bought me a cane like five years ago now. She bought me a cane to walk around the block. Now, I have a lot of faith, and this may run some of your viewers off or make them sick, but the book, I had this group of ladies at our church, and they're prayer warriors is what they are. And they want me to call them my girls. They're not ladies. They're not women. They're my girls. And they're 50 to 90, man. We're girls. We're not old. They start praying for me through all this. Now, in between all the 70 surgeries I'm taking because they're unregulated, the doctors are prescribing opiates. Before surgery, because I'm in so much pain, I have like a pain syndrome of Parkinson's. I'm on it during surgery because I had surgery. Then I'd taken them after surgery to get well. That's not working. I still hurt so bad. I would get six, six month long headaches. And then I would have a three day break and then get a six month headache. And so that's not working. And so I'm like, I know what I'm doing. I will prescribe my own medicine. So I prescribe myself vodka to take with my opiates. That is not a good combination. And I do not remember the week of Christmas in 2016. Two, two days after that, find myself in rehab in Florida. And the opiates are gone. The alcohol is gone. And for the first time in my life, I'm concentrating on me. What is going on with me? By this time, I already had DBS surgery, and they put two electrodes in my brain. The battery pack goes right here, which TSA loves. And during this period of time, I've got it jacked way up because the symptoms are so bad. My girls are praying for me. I don't detox at all. I'm watching everybody else get sick. It's coming out of both ends, man. They are so sick. And I'm like, no symptoms. And so God and I start talking and I go in and my counselor is a pastor. And he looks at me, he loves baseball. He's been to every major league baseball team, has mementos in his office from everywhere. And he goes, love the movie, love Dennis, a great story. Why are you here? I said, I lost hope. I lost faith. He goes, you know, Jesus is with you, right? And I said, he's been with me the entire time. I just don't know how to get out of what I'm in. He goes, so what you're telling me is Jesus is your co-pilot. And I said, yep. He goes, one question. If you have Jesus with you and he's your co-pilot, why are you not letting him drive? And for some reason that clicked and I was like, wow. And I wasn't trying to die, but I wasn't trying to live either. And so you have this great Disney story, but then there's life. And then there's this autoimmune disease and like, people go through a multitude of stuff that nobody ever knows they're going through. And sometimes it is absolutely devastating. 
At one point I'm throwing a hundred and I can react to everything that goes on and I can hit and I can do whatever I want on the athletic field to, I need a cane to walk. As I go through the 30 days that I'm there, I'm well and I'm, I've recovered my senses and I know what's going on and I know where I'm supposed to do because that's what God wants me to do in like two weeks. And they're like, he's well. The psychiatrist would call me in. They would ask me questions like, um, you're okay. I go home during this period of time. So that's chapter nine is the rehab chapter. Chapter 10 is the faith chapter. And that's why feather on the book, right? So during this period of time, I get home. I start turning my DBS down a little bit every day. My girls are still praying for me. My wife is taking a nap. My dog, Max, and I are out in the garage lifting weights. In between sets, I would sit down. This is where it gets crazy if you're not a believer. I start hearing this voice going, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. And it turns into a crescendo of voices. I think my friends are messing with me. The doors, the garage are open. I'm like, yeah, Max and I go out and we look around the corner. There's nothing there. Go back, sit down. It starts again. You were healed. You were healed. I go into the house. I turn off the DBS unit completely. I close my eyes. I do a circle with my eyes closed, which I have not been able to do in five years. Turn it off. My wife comes out and she goes, what are you doing? I said, I turn my DBS unit off. She loses her mind. Because two weeks earlier in, in our master closet, she had the DBS controller and she accidentally turned it off and I fell over. Now I turn it off and I'm turning circles and she's like, what are you doing? Before I had come in, there are feathers all over the driveway. So I tell her the whole story of how it happened. And I take her outside to see the feathers. They're gone. And my dog is sniffing everywhere because he saw them too. And and now they're not there. And what's going on? Go back to the neurologist. She tests me physically. She's like, I don't know how you got your coordination back, but you're fine. She sends me to have the radio radioactive test again. Test come back. Uh, your dopamine levels are perfect. You do not have Parkinson's. Now, I don't get this. This doesn't happen. Nobody gets well. I had it so bad, Jeff, that I would go do speeches, and my daughters were watching one of the recordings of my speeches. And they're like, Dad, you're you're not smiling and and you don't blink. And your face isn't moving at all. You're just spitting this story out. That's how bad it got. And then now I'm healed. Woohoo, it doesn't happen. And so the neurologist didn't want to see me anymore, right? Because she's like, I've never seen anybody get healed. That doesn't work. Go back to my neurosurgeon who put the DBS unit in. He's like, God, God is good, man. He is a believer. And he's like, but let's wait. Let's wait six months. I'm like, all right. Yeah. So we wait a year and then COVID hit. So it turns into two. Last summer, I had the first elective surgery I've ever had. And he took the DBS unit out. Running five to seven miles a day. I lift every day. I can walk up and down the stairs. I am perfectly healed. And you won't believe that. And I know 
because everybody's story is very personal, right? Yeah. So my wife starts putting stuff out on social media. And there are a couple of negative comments. Almost everything is good, but there are a couple of negative ones like, how could you say you ever had Parkinson's? I watched my husband die with it. I'm like, I'm sorry, but that's your story. You weren't living my life to see how bad it got to the point where I was drinking myself to death. But I'm healed and it happened and here I am. And so that's chapter 10. Love it. I love it. I love it. So when, when did you release this book? Just recently? 20, May, 2020. During oh, COVID. During COVID. I tell the book people, I'm like, don't do this. Nobody's out. And they're like, this is the perfect time for a book to come out. You know what? It was number one in the sports category for a couple of months. And then I did an interview on a podcast with somebody overseas. And then all these people in India are buying the book. And so it's been cool because it's a personal journey and I do it. This book is written like I talk on stage. And so you get the whole story you get before baseball to baseball, Disney movie. And then the rest is what has gone on through that journey of 20 years. I miss like two speeches because of my health in 20 years. I don't know how I do it, but I will sleep at home. I will get up, go to the airport. I will sleep in the airport till I get on the plane. I'll sleep on the plane. I get to the venue. I sleep until I have to talk. I go out and talk, blow it up. Everybody loves it. I go back and sleep until I have to go to the airport and I sleep on the, all the way. That is 15 years of my life. And now I don't want to sleep. I don't want to sit still. And I want to live life to the fullest because I've got my health back. And it's the most amazing thing. It's, it's, it's so crazy. One thing at gym is... I'm all, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I'm all about family, but I still put my health above everything else. Yeah. And it's like that Oprah saying, like, you got to fill your cup up first and yeah. you got to be able to take care of yourself because if you cannot mentally, spiritually, and physically take care of yourself, you're not gonna be able to serve and help others. And it's amazing how you appreciate your health and appreciate your well-being because I mean, that's the only way you're gonna be able to help and spread your word is obviously you being at your highest peak. So I love that you're doing, I mean, this is, I mean, congratulations on this all, man. This is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it's almost two parts of a Disney story. So I think we have the second part to still make into another movie, but it's, uh, this has been amazing, man. Where, where do you you see, where do you see yourself going with this? I mean, obviously doing your public speaking, your your book, where, where do you see yourself telling the story? Where do you see yourself going? Because there's so much, so many people, I think you still touch with this, right? Yeah. I, I, the last chapter of the book is seven principles on how to become a dream maker. And so we're going to make a work study so we can do businesses, but I'm also doing a Bible study so I can go the other way. Because for 20 years, I've walked that line of you can't talk about your faith. You can't talk about your faith, but I don't beat anybody over the head with it when I'm on stage, but I've talked about it for 20 years. Yeah. And so I've got the story, but I've got the faith story too. And now I'm going to split it up and I'm still going to walk that line because there are so many people that need help right now. I'll be honest with you. My five kids will not talk about my health because I think it they're freaked out because they saw how sick I was and everything we went through. And here I am. And I couldn't have done it without a great partner and my wife. It'll be 20 years next year. And what does she mean? What does she mean? To, what does she mean to you? Oh, the world. 
Uh, she's helped my faith become stronger. And she's been through me through really, really hard times. She's been through me, with me through the addiction. And now she's with me and she's seen everything. And even her sometimes, she still will fall back into, are you sure you should do that? Yeah. Should you work out that hard? And she's like, never mind. Forgot who I was talking to. And, and she's right back. But she travels with me every speech because she wants to now or we don't have kids at home anymore. And she loves watching audiences. And she goes, you know what? There's this aspect that you know when God walks in because when you start speaking and you hit a certain point like two minutes in, the room is dead quiet. Nobody's on a phone. Nobody's talking. They're glued to what you're saying. So it's been an amazing journey. And I look forward to growing old with her. And she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I never have set questions. Only one set question at the end where I ask all our audience. If something were to happen to you today, in a few words, how would you want to be remembered, described by your loved ones? someone who dreamed and then not just dreamed, but went out and chased those dreams. I'm an active person. I think my kids know that if I have something in my mind, I'm going to go do it. Yeah. I love it. I and love I want to help others because my grandparents thing, even though they were never rich, they always found a way to give back. And so we started the Jim, the rookie Morris foundation. We went into Fort Worth and we helped this high school and what started out as a me thing turned into Major League Baseball, the NFL, NASCAR. I mean, it was unbelievable. And these kids who would get off the bus and they, they didn't even have enough uniforms for the kids on the team would get off the bus 10 miles down the road and see this group of kids with a, a turf field and all these batting cages that were perfect and 10 uniforms and 20 hats and all these bats. And these kids had nothing. And then, so we went in and we got uniforms and bags and travel stuff for the baseball team and the softball team. We read the baseball field, the alumni got involved and they started putting, planting flowers and trees all over campus. And it totally turned everything around for a group of kids who only 27% live with a parent. Everybody else is couch hopping between aunts, uncles, grandparents, friends. And so to be able to do that with transient kids was amazing to me because you see firsthand what happens when you give back. Yeah. The response is overwhelming. And it is one of the happiest times my wife and I have ever had doing something because they were so thankful. And it. now they're not intimidated before they get off the bus. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to put on all our show notes how to get a hold of you, how to pick up your book, how to just, just follow you, man. You're, you're, you're an inspiring story. You're, you're just an incredible human being. I love what you're doing. I love your passion because as you're even talking and as you're, you're telling your stories and it's just, just, just this authenticity. And I think nowadays we don't have that very much, especially with social media. There's so much fakeness. If you see my social media, everything's about my kids, me doing stuff. With my kids. it's all, I try to be as authentic as I possibly can because I want to show who I am. I don't give a shit what I sell or who I'm with. It's all about what I truly live every day. So seeing that with you, I, I think is special. And 
man, I, I wish you all the success and anything you ever need, man. I'm I'm here. If you ever make your way across the borders, if the borders do open, come to Toronto, Canada. I, I'd love to take you around and show you around and uh, and help you out here as well, brother. I would love to when you guys start letting Americans <laughs> in again. <laughs> it's been a crazy hey, year. I, I have a favor. Hundred <laughs> percent. Do you mind? Do you mind if I send you? My two-year-old granddaughter singing a song from last night. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Oh my god! My first grandchild—they're fixing to have number two in November, and she is so precious. And I just like your heart melts. You just like I thought kids were great. Grandkids are awesome. That, that, that was that was my dad. That was my dad. <laughs> my dad was so close to my son, and it was uh, I. Uh, it was very special that he was a big part of his journey and he was able to be here when he's to be here and witness him run his first marathon. That was a huge thing for my dad. So that was a, yeah, appreciate your time, man. Appreciate them. And and I hope your, your children are around you and they appreciate you as a dad because it, it's, it's when you're young, you have this time's abundance. As we get older, you start realizing time's a currency and you start trying to yeah. live with no regrets. And I've lived for years with no regrets and, and, and I try to build as many memories with my kids so I could feel like one day when it is my time to go, I, I don't have regrets. Right. And, and, and there's never a right time. It's, it's, it's now just live with no regrets and try to live life to the fullest because shit changes in seconds and you've been through it. Life, life changes in a split of an eye and it just, yeah. and, and you, you can't get shit back. So just appreciate what we have and enjoy life to the max. Absolutely, man. Keep pushing your son. That is so awesome. I'm going to send you some videos too. Send me the video of your daughter, uh, your granddaughter. I'm going to send you some videos too. People put limits on everybody else. Yeah. And that's what we have to get rid of. I love that. Because they're going to live down to expectation. Blow it up, man. Live up to expectation. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Jim. Yes, sir, Jeff. Thank you. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank our guest, Jim Morrison, for taking time as busy schedules to be a guest on the Jeff Nobzine podcast. What a great conversation this is a today was a special little treat for myself as a host to have a such an incredible individual on with it such a an amazing story if you guys enjoy this podcast as much as i have like always leave a review five stars would be absolutely amazing myself and my staff love spending time reading the reviews until next week guys keep moving forward 